Father, thanks for a brief moment of silence this morning. And we ask, God, that you would be kind to us this morning as we study your word. Would you do what you do? Would you change us? Would you help our hearts understand by your spirit and through your word in the midst of your people what it means to follow the spirit of truth and what it means to recognize the spirit of error? So be with us this morning, God. Would you shape our hearts and our minds? Uh, we thank you that you love us and that you move towards us. Help us experience that this morning as we study and rehearse your story. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a Bible, it's already open. Open it up to 1 John uh, chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 collectively. We've been in a study of 1 John for the last nine weeks. We have four more weeks to go to finish out uh, two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. After that, we will have one standalone sermon, meaning it's just for our congregation alone, one Sunday, and then that'll be the first week of September, and then after that, we will jump into 12 weeks of the book of Revelation. Really easy stuff to study. Uh, we will be walking through that book collectively in the fall. That'll lead us all the way to the end of the year where we practice and celebrate Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas and the birth of Christ. So that just gives you a little bit of forecast for where we're going to be going on Sunday mornings. Um, and if you are new and haven't been with us, or if you need a reminder of where we are in the book of 1 John, as we ended up uh, finishing up chapter 3, uh, the whole idea that John is writing to this church that's divided because these people have come in and they start uh, talking and teaching about Jesus in a different way than John describes Jesus, and it's causing division. And so John's whole heart is to write the, a letter to this church, most likely in Ephesus, that would say, like, no, this is actually who Jesus is, and this is how you can know you're a child of God. This is how you can have assurance of who you are as a Christian. And these themes are woven all throughout these five chapters of what it means to love and what it means to abide and what it means to obey as we've been studying it collectively. And last week, Jim walked us through the end of chapter three and talked about when your heart condemns you and the difference of um, being condemned which is from the world, or being convicted, which is from the Spirit, so that we can have assurance as we walk with God in our lives. And if you have your Bible, just that last verse um, that in chapter 3, it just says this, verse 24, it says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So in the midst of this assurance and abiding, John is saying, because the Spirit lives in you, if you've made the decision to trust Jesus with your life, that is confirmation of being a child of God. He continues with this flow of thought, talking about testing not the Holy Spirit, but the spirits that are around us. And that's the whole point that he's going to drive after in these six verses of what it means to actually test the spirits. And he says that in verse 1, if you see it again, he's calling us to go like, listen, don't just believe everything you hear. Even if it sounds like Jesus, which these false teachers were sounding, they were using Jesus, but they were twisting who he actually was. And John's going, don't believe everything you hear. Test it. Test the spirits. And we test things all day long, don't we? I mean, the whole purpose of Amazon reviews is to test products. 
for us to know if we can buy something. We don't see it, we're not touching it, we're not feeling it, and we see it on a screen and go, can we buy this? I don't know about you, but I start looking at the reviews really quickly before I buy something. Some of us use Amazon reviews just as entertainment because like, there's really funny people in the world. And like, you could just read Amazon reviews and just laugh all day long. But have you ever bought something without looking at a review? Like you just buy it real quickly, you're like, oh, I need that, it's not that much money, and you buy it, and it shows up, and you're like, this, this isn't anything like what I thought I was buying. Has that ever happened to anybody? I know it's happened to me. And some of us have actually really studied the reviews. We've done our due diligence in that purchase, and we look at it, and man, it's got uh, so many reviews, thousands of reviews, and it's got, you know, four or five stars out of five, and we go, okay, that, that makes me feel better inside as a consumer, to go ahead and purchase it. We're testing those waters. I don't know if you're familiar with this. This has uh, been language that's new to me in the last couple of weeks uh, in the midst of reviewing it. And maybe some of you have tested those reviews and then something comes and you're still not satisfied with it. There's something I was recently reading a, a Consumer Reports review and it was talking about review hijacking. Anybody heard of this term before? Review hijacking, which basically what happens is people want to sell these things that actually aren't um, all that they're cracked up to be online so that you would buy them. And what they do is they pull reviews from other good products into their product because if they pull enough reviews, Amazon's algorithm will put them to the top. And so when you type in something, you'll see Amazon's choice and it's like a, a bunch of reviews that seem positive and so you're more likely to buy them. And in this Consumer Report review, uh, they were going after this phrase of review hijacking, and uh, one person was buying an iPhone uh, headphone adapter. And so they looked at it. It was an Amazon choice. There were four and a half stars out of five, over 5,000 reviews that were positive. And so they said, okay, like this, this looks good. And then they started reading all the reviews. Because who's going to read 5,000 reviews? Who has time for that? Unless you're trying to get entertained. You're not going to do that. And when he started looking at the reviews, he started seeing reviews for a coffee maker, for a keyboard, for headphones. They were not with the product at all, but they had been pulled over and the, the system brought them to a higher standard. And so there's a false way of understanding this and it's not what we thought we were going to buy. That's exactly what's happening at the church that John is writing to. There's this review hijacking of what's called Gnosticism. We'll talk about it in a little bit as we go through the text, but it's this version of Jesus that's not correct. It's not in line with the story of the Bible, but it seems kind of close. And so John is going, you need to test the spirits. And again, we, we test things all day long, and not only uh, do we test the reviews on Amazon, but the higher the cost of something we're about to buy, the more we test it. Isn't that true? Like even if you think of the phrase like dip your toe in the water, like it's not a high cost maybe to get wet, maybe the water's too cold, you'll jump in or take a bite of something. It's not a, it's not a high cost of going, well, I don't like the taste of that. I'm not gonna eat anymore. But the deeper you go in what you want to buy, the more you will test. If you wanna buy a, a pair of shoes that's expensive, you wanna try the shoe on. If you want to buy a car, which is more expensive, you want to test drive the car, you want to see what the reviews say, you want to test things. If you buy a house, which is a huge purchase, you not only have to test it, but you have somebody legally that has to come to your house and give an appraisal. There's a, a, a higher level of testing. 
Or what about relationships? Maybe one of the highest things we need to pay attention to, there's tests. You don't go on one date and then get engaged and get married, unless you're on a reality show, and then you don't even go on a date. You just, you're blind and you get married. Like, we, the things that are important to us, we test at a deeper level. And so why wouldn't we test the things that matter most spiritually to us? That's what John is saying to us. He's saying, man, if you just let things happen to you, and you let the world happen to you, and you're not examining, you're not testing, you're not going like, is that in line with the Bible? Is that, is that congruent with who Jesus is? It's going to be a problem. And so he's saying, test those things. Pay attention to those things. Examine those things. We ought to really test the things that matter to us. So verse 1, again, this is what he says uh, in verse 1. If you see, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. you got to let me just geek out on you for just a a little bit with with Bible and words for just a second, because this is going to be really helpful for us. I heard a seminary professor one time say that, like, the importance of knowing the original languages, and if you're not familiar, the Bible is written in the Old Testament in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek, and sometimes spoken in Aramaic. If you don't know the original languages, he was saying it's like trying, a, a husband trying to kiss his bride with the veil down, right? We, we miss some of the nuance and the understanding of what the text is trying to say. So we have to do uh, hard work and be good Bible readers and investigators as part of testing what is true to understand what is the author really trying to say? What is God really trying to say through this manuscript and this text? And we've talked about this before, but words are important in the Bible. And, and in our English language, for example, if I say the word squash, it can have a lot of different meanings in English. It can be literally like I squashed that cockroach, like I squashed it, and it's still alive, right? It could be figuratively, like, man, you need to squash that. Like, I don't want to hear anybody, you need to squash it. It could be um, a, a noun, a game is called squash that you, I don't play squash, I, I think something like with a paddle, right? So the way we make meaning of the word is wrapped around the context of the word, right? We all get that in English. So Greek and Hebrew are actually even more complex. So there's three words I just want us to highlight because they show up over and over in these six verses. And for us to really understand what is John trying to say, we need to understand what these words actually mean. Because they can mean multiple things as we read them in English. The words I want to look at just really briefly as we kind of begin to unpack this text is spirit, test, and world. So spirit in the Greek is pneuma. Right? That's where we get our word pneumonia. It has to do with our breathing. right? And uh, pneuma is an interesting word because in the Bible it's used over 300 times in different places, 10 different ways. So it's a variety of ways that we read spirit and we go, well, that's what that means. But you have to understand the context and the original language to understand what is the author trying to say. So in this specific passage, in these six verses, this is what the word spirit means. And just so you know, if, if you're going, well, like, I, I, I don't have time to study Hebrew or Greek or be fluent in it, you don't, like, man, there's tools right now that are out there. Like, uh, Blue Letter Bible is a great tool. You can plug in the verse, and you can go to the original language, and it'll give you all the original language, all the context. It's been made really easy for us to study this, Right? So even if you do a word study on pneuma, specifically in 1 John chapter 4, this is actually what John is trying to say when he says spirit. A spirit is one 
uh, in whom a spirit is manifest or embodied while divine or demonic. He says, one who is either truly moved by God's spirit or falsely boasts that he has been. That makes it a little bit more nuanced as we read spirit, right? It's somebody that's saying like, okay, I've been moved by God's spirit or I'm saying that I have, but it, I actually am not and it's actually demonic. Okay, that's the first word, spirit. The second word is test. And in Greek, it's dokamatsu, which is actually where we get our English word document. When you think of test and, and putting a document down, when you sign your life away, when you get a mortgage on a house, man, you fill a lot of documents out. And what's that document supposed to do? It's supposed to prove what is true in your agreement, in your arrangement, in your contract. So this word test literally means in this passage, to test, examine, prove, or scrutinize to see whether a thing is genuine or not. That's what the original language means. And then the last one, world, is the word cosmos with a K. It's where we get our word cosmos. And it's an ungodly added, uh, a multitude, the whole mass of people alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. When John is using this word cosmos, that's what he means. When he uses cosmos in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he's not using that language of cosmos. That is the language of all the people. And so it's helpful to know these nuances as we drill down to go like, okay, if, if we're getting tested and we're supposed to test the spirits, what does that actually mean for us? So we don't fall into following the spirit of error, but the spirit of truth. And from testing, you'll see that those are the two spirits. If you look back at your Bible, verse 6, you see there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of error. That's what we're looking for as we listen, as John's original readers are listening to these teachers. So how do you know which one is which? We're going to talk about two tests that we get from these six verses and then three results based on those two tests. And again, you have to remember the context of the original writing. We can look at the Bible as we test, and we should look at the Bible. You shouldn't just take what I'm saying up here as truth. You should dive into the text, to the scriptures. You should go to those tools. You should say, what does that actually mean? But for the original readers, nobody had a New Testament. There were a lot of people that were illiterate at the time. So what were they relying on? They're relying on oral tradition. These men that would stand up and speak something, and they're going like, I have face value that that person has authority. And so that's even more why, in the original context, they needed to test what they were hearing. We need to test what we're hearing as well. And these teachers, which we'll get into, man, they're claiming a false, twisted version of Jesus, which is what the enemy does. The enemy doesn't throw out, they're, they're, they're not dealing, John's not dealing with the people that are agnostic or atheist. They're not de he's not dealing with people that are worshiping Artemis, which was a goddess in Ephesus. They're not, he's not dealing with those people. He's dealing with the people that are talking about worshiping Jesus, but they're giving a false version of Jesus. So that's what we need to pay attention to in the midst of this testing. So the first test is this. There's two tests. How, how do we test the, those teachings, the people that are teaching certain things? The first test is, um, is how do you know you're obeying the spirit of truth and not the spirit of error with what these teachers say specifically about Jesus? What they say about Jesus is the first filter of the test. Look at verses two and three with me. It says this. By this, you know the spirit of God. 
that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming as now in the world already. One other quick word as we look at that word confess, it's saying like whoever, whatever spirit confesses that Jesus is the Christ and is of the flesh is from God. The word confess doesn't mean to publicly declare something. We even talked about confession and, and what it means to confess or admit. Stephen was just talking about it as we were worshiping. But it's not just publicly declare in the original language. It's not like if you've seen the office and Michael Scott is in some financial troubles personally and he goes back and he says like, man, and somebody goes, well, you could declare bankruptcy. That might clear it up. And so if you know the show, he walks out to everybody and just says, I declare bankruptcy. And they're like, well, that's, that's not what declaring bankruptcy means. That's, that's, not, that's, not, that's not what I meant. He's taking it very literally. And so this is not just a public declaration for everybody. What the word actually means in the original language is not to publicly declare something, but to fully declare, implying the yielding or changing of your conviction. And really what it's after is what you're saying matches your life, that your confessional faith matches your functional faith. Whoever confesses and is changed by that, not just giving lip service. And the first result of this test about Jesus, of understanding if we're following the truth or if we're following error, the first is in testing the Spirit of God always glorifies the Son of God. The Spirit of God always glorifies the Son of God. The spirit of the Antichrist, which you see this language, and we saw it in chapter 2. It's not with a capital A. It's not talking about a specific person. It's talking about somebody that's anti-Jesus, that spirit that is not in the way of following Jesus. The Antichrist does not glorify the Son, but tries to misrepresent the Son, tries to twist who Jesus actually is, and it's giving weight to what Ephesians 2 talks about, that the devil, the enemy, Satan, is the prince of this world. He has minimal reign at this time in our world. In John chapter 10, Jesus describes the devil as somebody who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, and he operates in lies, and that's his mode of operation, manipulation and lies. But God's Spirit that lives in every believer, everybody that's confessed and given their life and repented and has become a child of God, John keeps drilling, you're children of God, you've given your life to Christ. If that's true, you have the spirit that lives inside of you that's actually more powerful than the enemy. That's what verse 4 says in this text. Now, you're not more powerful in your flesh, but not as you're relying on yourself, but you're relying on God's spirit in you that you actually can have victory. You actually can have power to overthrow the schemes of the enemy, the mirage of hope, the false gospel that comes at you. You can actually have a grid and understanding for it because God's spirit lives in you. You can resist the idols of the culture. And you go, man, if that's true, like, man, I don't feel like I'm experiencing victory. <laughs> like, I feel like I keep failing. I don't feel like an overcomer, what John is saying in verse 4. I feel like I'm, I, I keep messing up. And you're going, what's the deal with that? And I would say to you, and I think this is what John is saying to his people, is going like, are you testing the spirits? 
Like if you keep failing, you keep messing up as you're trying to walk with Jesus, are you continually testing? Are you keep going back? Are you abiding daily, moment by moment, to trust the Spirit in you, to trust God's Word in you, to trust God's community around you to help you? Or are you just walking your Christianity out flat-footed? And you're going, I've made a decision for Jesus, but maybe I'll show up at church, but ah, Bible study, ah, well, ah. And you don't realize that these other spirits are coming at you every single day with the people you're around, with the culture we're around, with the advertisement we're around, and it is affecting us. It's eroding us. And so if you feel stuck, the answer, what John is telling us, is to continue to come back to Jesus. Continue to abide in him. Continue to trust in him. Continue to get to know him. And as you do that over time, as you continue to commit yourself to Jesus, he changes you. He changes you. He changes what you see. He changes what you believe in. He changes your convictions at a deeper level to go, you know what, five years ago, that was, a, that, that was not that big of a problem. But as I get closer to Jesus, I see, man, I don't want to do that anymore. And I want to change. You become more fully human. But some of us have subscribed to Jesus, but then we haven't really made any life change. We're not abiding. We're not testing. We're kind of just letting things hit us. We have to be proactive in our faith to grow. And that's the heart and the message. And the first idea of this testing is that the Spirit of God always glorifies the Son of God. The second thing in this testing, number two, is that uh, this reveals in our testing the exclusivity of Jesus is made apparent. The exclusivity of who Jesus is is made apparent. I like Gary Burge as he, uh, he wrote the NIV uh, application commentary for First John, and he says this. He says, it's interesting to compare chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, with chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. That's when Josh Kinsley preached, and it was using similar language of this anti-Christ, kind of anti-Jesus type of way. And Josh was using the language of warning, which I think is appropriate. And this is the language of testing. And Gary continues to say, in the first section, having a right relationship with the Father leads to a correct view of the Son. In the second, the one we're in now, having a right relationship with the Spirit leads to a similarly correct view of the Son. In each case, the, uh, the Son is central in all true contacts with God. Jesus Christ is the only point of communication between heaven and earth. The second thing we see in our testing is the exclusivity of Jesus is clearly apparent. And you might look at that and go, that seems pretty narrow. The only bridge between God and earth is through Jesus? That's what the text says, and that's what we're being called to test. And for us, if you think about testing, and if you haven't done this, like I would just encourage you to do it, because if somebody comes up and says, man, you're, you say you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, why? And you go, well, I grew up in church, and it seems good. And you haven't done any testing about other world religions, I would just challenge you look at other world religions. Put them up next to the story of the Bible because they're centrally different. Sometimes in our world we think, well, it's like a mountain and all religions kind of lead up to the same. It's all about loving. And like, but that's not actually true. When you start looking at the nuances of all different world religions, you start to see really quickly the Bible has something different to say inherently. And it's this, that all other world religions 
I have to do something to earn my way to the higher power. I have to do something. My good deeds need to outweigh my bad deeds. And if I do it well enough, if I reach enlightenment, I will actually get into this spiritual realm. But the Bible does not teach that. Christianity does not teach that. The way of Jesus is not that. You cannot do enough good. You can't. It's not possible. And that's the freedom. And that's the scandal of the gospel. That instead of trying to do good, you surrender yourself to the only one that did the perfect good, and that's Jesus. And you exchange your life for his. And in that, he starts to change you. And will you still mess up? Yeah, you will. And as you grow, you realize, again, even more sinful you are. You get more aware of how messed up you are. And that causes the cross to grow. And you go, man, I need Jesus even more. Even as we're singing that song, Lord, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, every other world religion will say, no, it's your righteousness and it's your defense. But Christianity speaks loudly in a different direction, saying, no, the only reason I'm made right with God is because he has saved me, he's opened my eyes to who he is, and because of that, I can know Jesus. And that's where my righteousness is. That's where my defense is. And so in this testing, as we listen to conversations with other people that believe other things, we go like, is the exclusivity of Jesus at the core of what those beliefs are? We have to test those things to understand. Like if we pull uh, Jesus out or if we twist Jesus and who he is, like these false teachers were doing, we miss the central story. We miss the massive point of the Bible. We need to continue to test these spirits, and in testing, the exclusivity of Jesus will be made apparent to you. And again, what John is combating these false teachers, most scholars believe, is what's called Gnosticism. Gnosticism means knowledge or having special knowledge. And Gnosticism, um, just in a brief form, is this cocktail of uh, Persian and Egyptian and Jewish and Christian ideas with some Greek philosophy kind of sprinkled on top. And at a baseline, what Gnosticism is, it's this idea that the material world is evil. The spiritual world is good. The material world is evil. And because of that, Jesus couldn't really be fully human. He came down and kind of took the form of a man, kind of like put on, if you put a jacket on, you don't become the jacket. So Jesus comes down and he, he puts on the form of a human, but he's not really human. He can't be because all matter is evil. And the way you get saved in Gnosticism is the idea that Jesus comes down, takes on the form of something spiritual so that he can transfer this spiritual knowledge to you and you can be taken away and be made right spiritually because, again, all matter is evil and you just need to get to the next level spiritually. And that's how you would have deliverance or salvation because, again, the, the material world is evil. This is review hijacking. <laughs> This is not what the Bible teaches. That's why John, even in this text specifically, is going after Jesus was somebody you confess that came in the flesh. He's specific about that. Now, in our culture, we're not dealing with, I, I don't think we're dealing with a lot of Gnostic teachers. That's not an area that we go, oh, yeah, like they're denying Jesus' humanity. What are we dealing with? When you think about that, what are the perversions, what are the things that have been twisted about who Jesus is in our culture that still use the Jesus name? That's what we need to test and go like, wait a second, that's not congruent with what I read in the Bible. When I was 
prepping for this, man, I just, I just Googled. The first thing that came to mind, there were lots of things that come to mind. And like, so if we're not dealing with Gnostics, who are we dealing with? And I, and I, I just Googled, don't do it now. You could do it later. I just Googled Jesus America. And I just looked at the images. Oh my goodness, right? Like Jesus is wearing a red and white, uh, like a flag and he's got machine guns coming out of a, an explosion. Like, like, like this idea of this nationalistic Jesus Man, I love America. I'm so thankful to be here. I realized the other day, I'm the only one that is not in the military in my family. Generations of, of family that I didn't serve. I kind of feel like the black sheep, you know, because I didn't serve in the military. Man, I love our country. But the idea that Jesus is for America and about America is embedded in our culture's uh, nationalistic kind of post-enlightenment version of America. It's baked in. And that's not the version of Jesus that the Bible talks about. This version of Jesus that just kind of kicks in the door and like is all about America. Like that's, that's not what the, the Bible says. Jesus is lowly. He's gentle. He's kind. And so as we think of these different versions of Jesus, whether it's religions or it's just a subculture of Christianity, we better pay attention and we better actually know the real Jesus so we don't get swept up and caught up in this spirit of error. For all of us, we need to do that all the time, which is why our discipleship is so important in, in, in the surge school, in the see Jesus school, studying Jesus. What is, who is he actually? What does he actually look like? What are his rhythms and his cadences? So we know when we see a counterfeit, a spirit of error, we go, I don't think that's, I, I just don't think that's what Jesus is like in the actual Bible. It's important for us to pay attention to that and not get lulled into the other direction. So again, the first test that John is giving us in the first couple of verses is like, what do, what do these people say about Jesus? The second is, what does the world think about what these people say, these teachers say? Right, verse four says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater than you, than he who is in the world. We talked about that in verse five. They are from the world. Again, remember that the language of the world here that John is using specifically, the nuance of it. Therefore, they speak from the world. The world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So when you are working with your coworkers, with your family, with people that are in the world, again, the world's version, as he's using the language, they're anti-Jesus. They're not about Jesus. When you work and interact with those people, you rub shoulder to shoulder with those people, and I hope you have some of those people in your life, and you talk about your life decisions with those people, and they scratch their head and they look at you and they go like, why would you do that? You should be encouraged. Because what this text is saying is a filter of trusting in the spirit because the majority of the world is of the spirit of air. If they haven't given their life to Jesus in a real and tangible way, they're going to go, why are you doing that? Why would you love that person that way? It should be attractive to them, but at a minimum, it's going to be confusing for them. This was told of me as a young adult. It's been told of, of my sons at certain parts of their life. It's like, like, you are wasting the peak of your sexuality because you're waiting for marriage. That doesn't make sense to the world. 
Why wouldn't you do that? If you're in love, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you move in with that person? You're going to save money. You're going to kind of see if you fit together, you're compatible. Because the Bible says that's actually not wise to do. And the world's going to scratch their head and go, like, why? Why? What about your career choices? How do people in the world, uh, what's their primary motive for taking a job or not taking a job? It's money. Right? You take a job if it's better pay, it's a better situation, but it's, it's primarily driven by money. Now, money matters. We need money to support our families and do all those things. That's good. But as a Christian, your primary motivation for your career should not be money. It should be in the conversation, but that's not the one thing driving why you do what you do every day. And for the non-Christian, for the world, they're going to scratch their head. When I was coming out of college, I had uh, uh, some job offers, and one of my professors is like, man, I would love for you to come work for me. And I said, actually, I'm going into full-time ministry. And he's like, you're in college, and you have this talent, and this is what you're going to do? It didn't make any sense to him. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He scratched his head going, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. My dad felt similar. He was going like, no, don't do that. Like, what? Why? What? You're wasting something. And I'm going, listen, it should be confusing the decisions that you make, not weird, but confusing to the outside world because we can swing way over here and we can kind of justify our weird decisions and say, well, I'm following God. Like as we listen to the Spirit and we say, this is what it means to love. Like why would you love that person after they did that to you? You should cancel them. You shouldn't talk to them. You shouldn't interact with them. And the gospel presses us to forgive and to love. And the world should go, that doesn't make sense. That's another indicator as you're testing to follow the spirit of truth or the spirit of error. Last one, number three. What are this results in testing? In testing, plurality is a necessity. Plurality is a necessity. Here's where I'm getting that from the text. Again, it's not face value, but in the original language, John uses every verb in these six verses in the plural. And here's why it's not, it's not written like that in English, because it would be real clunky and confusing to read. But even that first verse should literally read this way. It should read, uh, sorry, I lost my place like Jim last week. It should read that you all are testing together. And so it's this idea of all of us, not just you test, but you all test the spirits together. And so what John is calling to us as a church is this collective testing. It's not you uh, on YouTube in front of your camera by yourself and you read something, you go, that doesn't seem right. And you don't get any other conversation or comments around you of the church. You just go, this seems like the right thing. I'm just going to start shouting it. No, like this is in plurality. You all test the spirits collectively and together. Again, this should point to some of our cynicism and curb some of it. Again, Gary Bird says it this way, which I think is helpful. He says, how do I cultivate a discerning spirit without becoming cynical? This is a practical question implicit in John's commands for discernment. My impulses to critique, analyze, or judge must be worked out in the community of church's leadership. My voice, which by itself sounds righteous and orthodox, may sound different when heard by other thoughtful leaders. This calls for a humility and courage that is willing to submit to the corporate voice while still retaining its passion 
and vision. Isn't that helpful? This idea of testing the spirits has to be done collectively. We don't do it in a vacuum. What Christianity is, is a community-driven, community-based way of living. And we need to test every spirit to see whether they're from God. And there are plenty of things to disagree with as kind of we close this. There's plenty of things to disagree with in the text. Right? There's plenty of nuances to go like, you can still hold Orthodox Christianity, the essentials about who Jesus is and what he came to do and what it means to believe in him, and we can have different views on practices of baptism. And some of us go, I don't know if we can. We can. We can, right? There's tons of those secondary conversations that we need to have in community, in humility, in love, in curiosity. Those conversations are rare these days because everybody gets canceled. Everybody is reared up about everything. What we do as Christians is we take minor issues and we major in them. And man, can we do better? Can we have an environment? Can we make an environment? Can we commit as Redemption Peoria to say, man, I want to have a conversation and I want to listen to you and I want to be curious and I want to be humble. And when you say, man, this is how I think about the end times, which we're about to study in the fall, can we go like, oh, that's an it? Like, I've never thought about that before. And if I say I don't agree with you, can, can we have some dialogue and <laughs> kind conversations with one another? And I've been so thankful and so proud of our members here that we have engaged in dialogue that's been charitable. That we've said, hey, this is what I heard. Can we talk about this? And we have back and forth conversations instead of like, well, I heard he said this and I'm out of here. Like we need to have a space, which sounds very rare in our culture right now, to, to hear each other and maybe even disagree with each other on these minor things, which are important. They're important. But can we foster a community of curiosity and humility in the midst of our differences? Like, that's what I want to be a part of. Again, the more I'm involved in church culture, the more I don't see that. And I, I want us, we, we need to foster that, to listen to each other. Doesn't mean we give way to certain things, but we go like, okay, what does it mean to have that conversation and to have it well? And you guys have heard this before. It's, it's well noted by multiple people. Some people say Augustine, said it. I don't, I don't know if that's true, but we'll, we'll give it to him. He's, a, he's, he's pretty good. But the, the idea is, uh, in essentials, unity, right? In the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. In the essentials of who Jesus is, what he came to do, who he was, how we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, like those are essential. We have to hold to those, but the other things, the, the modes of uh, the end times and how we practice baptism and like, can we have kind conversations about that? In the non-essentials, can we have liberty? And in all things, can we have charity? Can we be kind to one another? Can we be marked by love? Because we're called to test the spirits. And in the midst of that, in the midst of our uh, essentials and who Jesus is, this is why we practice the, the Last Supper every single week because we are foundationally built on what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's our entry point to knowing God, to loving him, to be a child of God. And as Jesus was getting ready to go to his death to sacrifice for us, he gets in a room with his followers and he says, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And he starts breaking bread and pouring wine. 
And it's a symbol of what he does on the cross for us. And he says, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. So we can come back to our essentials. And that's what we're going to do today. As we wrap up and we go, okay, what does it mean as we leave these doors to continue to test the spirit? Let's be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. Let's center ourselves there and understanding the truth of the message of the gospel that Jesus came, died for you, died for me, that I can be made right again. And I need to be reminded of that every week. And so do you. So let's pray. Father, would you be with us in the midst of this? God, would you help us understand what it means to test the spirits and kindness and goodness and truth and humility and honesty. May we be a community that has fruitful and honest and caring and loving conversations, not to be defensive, but to be curious, to learn what it means to trust the exclusivity of you, to trust that your spirit always glorifies your son and to do it in the midst of plurality. Help us do that well. We ask it in your name. Amen.